Good morning. This morning we're going to look at a passage from Matthew chapter 9. Uh, and in Matthew chapter 9, uh, Jesus meets someone that we call Matthew. And this is kind of an interesting story because it's one of the times that Matthew appears in the book called Matthew. Uh, it's a book that traditionally uh, is ascribed to Matthew as the author. And uh, we're going to read uh, what I think is an interesting account, particularly after the series that we've done looking at all of these people who have had these missions and these calls and have been sent by God to perform certain tasks and been uh, sent by God to, to do things in his name. And, and we've seen all kinds of responses to it. And we've seen all kinds of, uh, of incredible things that have happened. We, we've seen people who have risen to the occasion through the power and the might of God and his spirit. And we, we've seen a lot of those examples but what I'd like to do now, and probably for the next couple of weeks, is look at a couple of passages that are very specific to followers of Jesus about who he has called and uh, what we have been called to do. Throughout the New Testament, you'll see passages arise that will talk about your calling. You'll see passages arise that will talk about uh, who Jesus has called, and you'll see passages arise that tell you what you are called to do. And so we're going to look at a couple of these passages, beginning with this one here in Mark chapter 9, which is a rather surprising call. Um, you know, we've looked at a bunch of people who were called throughout the Old Testament, and while not all of them were perfect, in fact, uh, sin is kind of a defining characteristic of a lot of what happened in those stories, I think over time people begin to, if someone lived long ago, and if someone's in the Bible— we think they're a pretty good chap, especially if God used them for something. We, we kind of, uh, you know, magnify them through like a biblical lens to where we think that some of these ancient people are just like perfect. They're great humans. They're, they're, they're people who we should all ascribe to be. And they're people who are monumental heroes of the faith. And we think of Abraham in that way. If you read the story of Abraham, he does act in faith, certainly. And he's remembered for that. But it's not hard to find some failures in the life of Abraham. Uh, and the same is true with Noah, and the same is true with Adam, and the same is true with each descendant of Abraham that follows. The same is true with Moses. And, and you can go down the list, and you can find that while we tend to think of those as like righteous, wonderful, exalted, exemplary heroes, they are flawed humans. And, and sometimes we have a tendency to magnify them, and then... When, when we do that, we think that God will use and will call the people who are, like, the great ones, the righteous ones. He called Moses, and Moses is great. And he called Abraham, and Abraham is a, the father of the faith. And, you know, like, and so we tend to think that God will use those in the upper echelon. And because of that, he might neglect or overlook those who are on the bottom. And I don't think this is a conscious thought. In fact, I think if we were asked that, we might say, no, no, because I know Jesus uh, says good things about people on the bottom. And so we would know that, but I, I do think we tend to, to lean in that direction in our uh, unconscious thoughts in the way we view the world. And Jesus does challenge that. And there are some people who Jesus is going to run into conflict with who not only kind of subtly leaned that way in their unconscious uh, thinking, but they actually like, would state that directly that if you are a sinner, God can't use you and you should be excluded. And Jesus is going to run a ministry that's going to go in the exact opposite direction of that. And the call of Matthew in Matthew chapter 9 is a really powerful and vivid depiction of that. And it's an excellent reminder for each one of us. It's a reminder for who we are 
Like, if you're called by God to become a follower of Jesus, you need to know that you were called as a sinner. And that's really, really important. Uh, your righteousness earned you nothing before God. In fact, you are not righteous before God. You were called as a sinner. And so the very fact that you can be called a son and a God, a child of God, that you can be someone who is called righteous is an act of grace on the part of God. Something for which you should be forever thankful and something that that gratitude uh, should motivate you to act in humble obedience to that God. So number one, it helps us remember who we are and not to get uh, uh, an elevated opinion of ourselves. And secondly, it helps us remember how to view other people. Uh, you're going to, throughout your life, meet a lot of people who are sinners. Uh, in fact, just about everyone you meet. Uh, you're going to meet people who do things the wrong way. You're going to meet people who live in a sinful world and live a sinful lifestyle. And what you could fall into the trap of doing is immediately elevating yourself above them and excluding yourself from them. Because sin is infectious and uncleanness can spread to me, and I don't want to be like them, and so the safest thing to do is exclusion. And what Jesus is going to do is the exact opposite. He's going to see sinful humanity as opportunity to embrace. He's going to see sinful humanity as an opportunity to shine the goodness of God where it's most needed. He's going to see sinful humanity as an opportunity for the goodness and the grace of God. And so we're going to look at this passage in Matthew chapter 9 and hopefully learn some things about Jesus and about our call as well. Uh, so turn with me to Matthew chapter 9 and verse 9. We're going to read verses 9 through 13, and then we'll, we'll talk about these verses a little bit. Matthew chapter 9 and verse 9 says, And Jesus went on from there, and he saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. And Jesus said to him, follow me, and he got up and followed him. Now that right there is all of a sudden a remarkable thing, because uh, we don't know who this Matthew guy is. We know essentially one fact about him is that he's a tax collector at a tax collector's booth. Jesus uh, has already called a few people uh, to come be followers of him, and that's a big invitation. Not everyone was given that invitation. When he says follow him, it's not literally just walk behind me. There's actually something deeper to it than that. He's calling Matthew right now to be one of his closest followers. He's calling him to be one of those who will become an apostle, who will be sent out by him. And Jesus is doing so in such a way that, that Matthew, when he got up, and when he got dressed for work that day, like he had no idea that his life was going to be irrevocably changed you know, forever. Uh, but that's what happened. He's at work and all of a sudden, Jesus, who's been creating quite a stir, chooses him of all people and says, you follow me. Now, we'll talk about it here in a second, but one of the things that is remarkable about that call is how unexpected it would be and how actually offensive that would be to the other people standing there. Because as a tax collector, Matthew's someone who would be hated. People didn't like Matthew. People didn't like his ilk, the tax collectors. And we'll talk about why in here just, in just a minute. But that right there is a phenomenally shocking passage. What you would expect is, and Jesus saw a man named Matthew sitting in a tax collector's booth, and Jesus said to him, why don't you get a real job and start supporting Israel again? You know, why do, why do you get, why don't you have an honest day's work or something like that and give them a nice little curse and then walk off? Like, that's something that people would have perhaps liked to, to see. Uh, but that's not what Jesus does. He says, follow me. And then verse 10. And then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, uh, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, 
they said to the disciples, why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard this, he said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what it means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And then Jesus uh, uh, moves on and he begins answering some other questions. There's actually a good number of conflicts that are arising in this story right here that Jesus finds himself in the middle of. But this one right here is fascinating. One thing it tells me about Jesus is Jesus didn't much care about protecting his reputation. Um, He did things all the time that if he were really concerned about what others thought about him, uh, that he, he's making some bad decisions. Uh, but the thing is, and it's really, it's incredible. For someone who's claiming to be the Messiah, your reputation's kind of important. If you're wanting to have a spiritual influence on people, you would want them to, to think the best about you. You would want to do things to protect your reputation, your integrity in their eyes. And yet Jesus is doing two conflicting things. The first thing he's doing is he's making these radical claims about his own self-identity. And the other thing he's doing is his actions are constantly making it hard for people to believe those claims. Like the Messiah is not going to be the one who hangs around with the tax collectors and the sinners and the prostitutes and the drunks. Like those are the people who the Messiah of all people will be completely distinct and excluded from because he's holy. And holy means separate and set apart. He's going to be separated from those unclean, disgusting, wicked, sinful people. And so Jesus will make claims about himself. And then his actions, people will think, well, you can't be the Messiah because look at who you're hanging out with. Jesus, if you just read about the things people say about him, he's called a blasphemer. Well, no Messiah is going to be a blasphemer. And so Jesus does things, and people end up accusing him of blasphemy because of it. One of the reasons people accuse him of blasphemy is because he made those claims about himself. And like I said, his actions often compromised what people expected those claims to mean. And so if, if you're walking around claiming to be the son of God, but then you're breaking Sabbath or something, they think you're lying about this. And a lie about that is blasphemy. And so people would call him a blasphemer. Uh, people would say he was demon-possessed. In the Gospel of John, they actually say, you're possessed by demons. Uh, or later, uh, in other passages, they'll say uh, that he is uh, basically in league with the rulers of the demons. The only way he can cast out demons is by the power of demons. And again, why, why would they say that? Because he's clearly casting out demons. No one can deny that. But if you have a sinner, which they think Jesus is, and he's casting out demons, clearly God's not the one letting him do that. Uh, So who else could cast out demons? Well, I guess Satan, maybe, you know, or the ruler of demons is powerful enough to do it. So somehow Jesus is, is working together in conjunction with the like embodiment of wickedness in order to do this. And Jesus thinks, well, that's foolish. Why would Satan cast himself out? You know, like that, that on its head is just a really weird argument to make. But it's the only thing they have because they think that he's a sinner. Why? Because he keeps doing things that are harming his reputation. Um, They think he's a Sabbath breaker. You know how easy it would be for Jesus, like, to wait a day to do some of the things that he does? Like when he heals someone on the Sabbath, or when he, like, and everyone gets all upset. It's like, he could have done it yesterday, or he could do it tomorrow. Why does he keep choosing Sabbath to do these things? And then a huge uproar starts about it. Well, I think he's, in, in one way, trying to teach about the true nature of Sabbath. Like, if your Sabbath observance 
is keeping you from helping someone in need, your Sabbath observance is wrong. I think is, is a pretty good mindset that Jesus wants people to develop. Uh, but also, it, it provides a new way of thinking about what the Messiah is doing. And that becomes a clue, I think, as to why Jesus is so often going to go sit with tax collectors and sinners. Because, uh, yeah, he's going to harm his reputation, but he's also going to develop a new kind of reputation. And that new kind of reputation is actually a more accurate picture of God, and it's the one that he wants people to start seeing. People will call him a Samaritan, which you and I, that might not mean much. Uh, or it might even sound like a compliment because we've heard the story of the Good Samaritan. If you think like, oh, he's a real Samaritan, you mean like he's a good person who will help you in need. That is not what it meant when Jesus was called a Samaritan. It was more of like a racial slur. Uh, it was people who had intermarried with Gentiles living to the north of them, and they were kind of seen as like fake Jews, and they were uh, people who they have some, some similarities in their backgrounds, but they also are infused with, with false religion, uh, with, uh, with a false temple, with uh, false bloodlines. And so, like, Samaritans ended up becoming hated people who there was prejudice against them. They had, like, historic wars with Jew, uh, between uh, the, the Jews and the Samaritans. And so by calling him that, they're essentially calling him an enemy, calling him illegitimate. Um, they'd call him a drunk. You know, Jesus, uh, they, they called him a drunk and a glutton uh, because he would be with people and Jesus would drink and Jesus would eat and those people were, would be drunks and some of those people would be gluttons and Jesus was around those types of people. So they just like took the sin of these people and immediately interpreted everything Jesus did in the least sympathetic light possible and then condemned him for the actions of the other people. They actually do that quite a bit. They'll condemn Jesus because his disciples ate some heads of grain on the Sabbath day. They'll condemn Jesus because his disciples don't fast enough. They'll condemn Jesus because he's eating with people who are tax collectors and sinners. And it's like, it's like their sin is contagious, and if Jesus is even near these people, well, then he must be guilty of the same types of things that they are. When, Jesus, when there was a, a woman who had a, a history of uh, sinfulness and a reputation of sinfulness, and she comes and she begins washing the feet of Jesus with her uh, tears and with her hair, the Pharisees around Jesus see this, and they say something along the lines of, this guy's no prophet. If he was a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this was. And if he knew what kind of woman this was, he would kick her off of his feet right here this very minute. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus is willing for his reputation to suffer in order to be with people who need him. Um, it matters who you eat with. Like, in, especially in the storyline of the Bible, uh, who you eat with is kind of a big deal. And Jesus... Jesus would eat with his disciples. We see meals that he has with his disciples, and that's no shock there. But then he would also have meals uh, with the Pharisees. Quite a few times he has meals with Pharisees. Quite a few times he has meals with tax collectors and, and sinners. And, and those are ways of breaking boundaries that have been set up, whether spiritually or nationalistically, and Jesus has a way of breaking those things down. And that's something that he wants the church to engage in also. In Galatians chapter 2, big controversy arises about who you eat with. Peter had been eating with Gentiles, uh, which traditionally Jews had grown to not do. Uh, you keep yourself separate from them. But then when some Jews from Jerusalem came and were with Peter, Peter didn't want them to know that he was eating with Gentiles. So he stopped eating with Gentiles, and he would only eat with the Jews now. And Paul not only sees this and is upset about it, he doesn't rebuke Peter for being impolite to Gentiles. Uh, he doesn't rebuke Peter by saying, 
uh, that's not a nice thing to do. You should treat these people equally. Paul sees this as such an affront to the mission of the church that he says that Peter is no longer walking straight with gospel truth anymore. He's like, you're actually, by not eating with Gentiles and only eating with Jews, you're actually turning from the gospel because the gospel is the message of bringing the whole world into one unified family of God. And that's what Jesus is doing. And that's what the church is supposed to be doing. And so Jesus' reputation suffers, but it suffers intentionally. He heals people on Sabbath intentionally. He eats with tax collectors and sinners intentionally, not only to show the value of the people that he's working with, but also to redefine his reputation as Messiah so that people will see walls get broken down when you begin to follow Jesus. Tax collectors and sinners uh, were hated in the days of Jesus. Uh, that's one of the reasons why this is such a, a, a surprising and a controversial thing for Jesus to do. Um, Tax collectors were seen not only as like sinful people, but they were seen as national enemies and traitors. Like there were political reasons to not like tax collectors and sinners. I, I appreciated the prayer that we had earlier this morning that prayed for unity in a time where there's probably going to be some uh, political division. Tax collectors caused a lot of political division. One of the reasons why is because Israel was supposed to be its own autonomous nation ruled by its own king who was ruled by God. But instead, they found themselves occupied by a foreign pagan uh idolatrous ruler by Rome. And before them, it was the Greeks. And before them, it was the Persians. And before them, it was the Babylonians. And like their history had been a history of oppression. And they were longing for the day when oppression would cease. And do you know what tax collectors would do? They wouldn't fight for oppression to cease. They wouldn't uh, stand up for Israel and say, no, we need a true Messiah who's going to come and we're not going to, to pay your taxes. We're going to be our own autonomous people. That's not what they would do. They would take your money, like they would take money from their brothers, and they would give it to the pagan foreign Gentile rulers. And they would say, hey, I'm taking your money and I'm going to give it to Rome. And so that was seen as like the most vivid way possible of being a traitor to Israel and supporting Israel's enemies. Not only that, they would often, because they could get away with it, get rich by lining their own pockets with your money. They had the protection of Rome. They could kind of tax you whatever they wanted to. They would often overtax. They would get wealthy themselves. So not only were they traitors, not only were they political and national enemies, they were cheats who stole from you. Like people hated them because of this. And there wasn't much they could do about it. You beat up a tax collector and you have to answer to Rome for that. And so tax collectors were hated. They were excluded. But that's pretty much all Israel could do. And here Jesus comes along, not taking the side of Israel, but taking the side of the tax collector. And not only does he go and dine at the tax collector's house, he calls the tax collector to be a follower of his. By the way, if you're wanting to have a, a good atmosphere among your team, you know, if, you, if you're calling together a group that you want to work together on something, Jesus goes about it the strangest way possible by calling people who very often will have strong inclination to hate one another. Uh, Matthew's not going to be popular in that group, and yet Jesus is calling him to become a part of it. Why? Because Matthew and Peter and Simon and, and Judas and all of these people who Jesus calls, they have something in common. In fact, we have it in common with them. And it's something that makes all of us special. We are all created in the likeness and in the image of God. And we all have worth and value. 
The people who Jesus eats with, he eats with because they matter, because they're valuable. They may be sinners. They may be tax collectors. They may uh, have been, become outcasts. They may be seen as unclean people who you want to distance yourself from. But Jesus would rather be criticized for embracing them than for excluding them. He would rather be criticized for his embrace than loved for his exclusion. And I think that's a model that he wants the church to operate on. I mean, and that, that model becomes so difficult. When you look at the book of Acts, you know, in Acts chapter 15, that's one of the reasons the church convenes to have uh, these deep discussions about what is it that we have to bind on Gentiles in order for them to be a part of us. We can't just accept them on the basis of their faith in Jesus. They also have to change some stuff about who they are, make them be circumcised, make them follow Torah, do something. It's like, we're making it too easy to embrace people. That was, that was a conflict in early Christianity. It's too easy to include these people. We need to make it harder on them. And uh, what, what Jesus' message and what his apostles are sent to go say is, no, there is something that's going to unite mankind now. And it's not your borders of your nation. It's not who you voted for. It's not the color of your skin. It's not how much money you have. It's not even your past. And it's not your, it's your faith in Jesus Christ. And it's your commitment to follow him as a disciple of his, to abide in his presence, to be who he called you to be, to live that out in your life, and to go show the world the goodness of the message of Jesus Christ. That's your defining characteristic now. And we live in a world that that's not the defining character. We live, sadly, in a world where even in the church, we don't want that to be our defining characteristic. We want to keep the borders in place and we want to uh, do so in such a way that we have like hierarchies and tiers of who the, the really good ones are and we kind of exclude ourselves. And, and that's problematic. When your politics cause you to divide from someone else, even though the blood of Jesus causes you to be united with that person, then you may find that your politics are mattering more to you than the blood of Jesus. Um, when those types of things happen, I think we're taking a step backwards from what the mission of Jesus is. And the reason that Jesus has this meal and the reason Jesus is doing all this, he's going to give three illustrations why. Uh, one of them is because he's a physician. And one of his jobs is to heal. One of the things Jesus is calling us to do is to heal. And that's what Jesus is doing. He becomes our, our model of that. Now, uh, Jesus often actually does physically heal people. But right here, he's using this as an illustration of something spiritual that's taking place. A doctor who says, ah, get the sick people away from me, I don't want to be around them, is a bad doctor. Uh, a doctor who will not uh, try to help those who are sick because they're sick is not going to be doing his job as a doctor. What you could say as a doctor is, well, it's their own fault they're sick. I told them not to, not to you know, do those things where they would get germs. Or I told them, like, you, you could, I mean, you could often blame people for their sicknesses. Not every sickness. Some sicknesses you can. But again, even doctors not supposed to make those types of uh, exclusions. They're supposed to help those who are in need. And one of the things that, I mean, has been... Uh, I mean, it always happens, but one thing that has been really remarkable over the last couple of years, especially with COVID and with some of these things, and it just reminds you of how often doctors and nurses and those in medical professions do this, they put their own health at risk in order to help those that they are with. It's like they will risk suffering themselves in order to be a healing presence in the life of someone else. Just like Jesus is destroying his own reputation 
in order to show these people how much they matter. Jesus, in the ultimate way, is going to sacrifice everything on the cross to be a source of healing in a world that so badly needs it. Jesus is the great physician. Jesus is the one who sacrifices himself in order to heal others. By his stripes, by his wounds, we are healed, is the language of Isaiah 53. It's the language of someone who takes your sickness upon themselves so that you can be free of it. Jesus is doing that here with these people. He then, after his point in verse 12, uh, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. He says, but go and learn what it means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. It's interesting that he tells the Pharisees who are condemning him to go learn what the Bible means, because they're supposed to be the people who know the Bible. But he says, I want you to go and learn what it means. I desire mercy or compassion and not sacrifice. That comes from the book of uh, Hosea. That comes from Hosea chapter 6. And one thing that's interesting as you read Hosea chapter 6 is uh, a number of important points emerge from it and a number of points of contact between what Jesus is doing and what Hosea is preaching uh, emerge in this passage. For example, just the very first verse of Hosea chapter 6 says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. So they're saying he has torn us and he has wounded us. That, that's the punishment that they've been going through at the hands of their enemies. But they're saying he will heal us and he will bandage us. Who heals and who bandages? Well, a physician does that. And, and so even the first verse of this chapter, if Jesus is saying, go learn what this passage means, they should probably read that passage and read the, the passages around it. God is being pictured from the beginning in Hosea 6 as the physician who's healing them because of the uh, results of their own sins. Like they have sinned against God, they have rebelled, and because of that injustice, pain, and suffering, and even enemies have come into the land, and God is the one who will heal them of that. He's the great physician. But even in saying this, when you look at verse 4, you come to find out that their, their love for God seems to be fleeting and momentary. Maybe it's just so that they could get healed so that they go back to their own way of life. If you look at verse 4, he says, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? And what shall I do with you, O Judah? For your loyalty is like a morning cloud, like a dew which goes away early. Their, their loyalty, their steadfast love of God, their mercy, it's something that appears just for a little while, and then it vanishes away. It's like the dew in the morning. He says, like, you claim to love me. You say, let's go know the Lord. But you so quickly desert that as soon as things get difficult. And so then, verse 6, he says, for I delight in loyalty or steadfast love or uh, compassion or mercy. That word can be translated a number of ways, uh, rather than sacrifice. And the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, verse 7, they have transgressed the covenant and they have dealt treacherously against me. Gilead is a city of wrongdoers tracked with bloody footprints. And as raiders wait for a man, so a band of priests murder on the way to Shechem. Surely they have committed uh, the crime. What? What's happening is he's looking throughout their cities, and he sees wickedness, he sees bloodshed, he sees murder, he sees violence, and he's saying there's no compassion in there. Don't bring me your sacrifices if you're not actually going to live out what those sacrifices and what the character of God is, is calling you to be. It's supposed to embody, which is compassion and mercy and love. God is merciful. 
And he will heal in, in, in his people. He will bind them up. He will be a great physician. That's what Hosea 6 is saying. God will do that. But God desires the people that he's healing to offer that same type of mercy to one another, not just to ignore that mercy and sacrifice instead. It's like, okay, there's two ways to God. I could either be who God calls me to be, or I could ignore mercy, compassion, and love of neighbor, and I could just offer these sacrifices. And what you come to find out is sacrifice without living out the message of the mercy of God is meaningless and shallow. God doesn't want it. God doesn't want your sacrifices if you're not going to have justice and mercy and righteousness. God doesn't want your sacrifices if you're going to mistreat one another throughout your week and then go and bring your nice sacrifice to the temple. Your sacrifice is, is worthless in that way. God wants your sacrifice in your worship to be consistent with the life that you're living. So what does this have to do with uh, Matthew chapter 9? What does this have to do with Jesus calling uh, Matthew and eating with tax collectors and sinners? Even people who are sick because of their sin are people who Jesus shows compassion and mercy to. Even people who it's their own fault that they've been excluded, uh, Jesus says we should, rather than exclude them, look at them as people who are in need of mercy, who are in need of compassion. I think sometimes we can forget that. We can uh, have such a pull-yourself-up-by-your-own-bootstraps mentality that if we ever see someone not doing that, we think the worst of them. We, we interpret their life and their decisions in the least sympathetic light possible, and all of a sudden, we become okay with it. We become okay with them because it's their fault and they're the bad ones, and we become happy with ourselves because it's not our fault and we're the good ones. And Jesus is saying, you were called, like everyone he calls, he doesn't call because they're the good ones. In fact, if you consider yourself to be the good ones, you probably won't even hear his call. It's those who are sinners who Jesus came to call. And you think, well, I thought Jesus wanted us to be righteous. In fact, even earlier in Matthew, in Matthew 5.20, he says, except your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Like, Jesus wants us to be righteous. Uh, in Matthew 5, 6, uh, Jesus is going to say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And in Matthew 6, he's going to say, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Like, when Jesus says, I came to call sinners not righteous, you think, well, what about all the stuff you just said about being righteous? And I think there are two points to remember uh, as we start to bring this lesson to a close. Number one, the call is for sinners to seek, fulfill, and embody righteousness. It's not that righteousness doesn't matter. It's that people who already think they're righteous, they're not going to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Like, if I just had a big meal and I'm full, I'm not going to hunger and thirst for more food. If I already think that I'm full, I'm not going to need anything else. The people who think that they are righteous are not the people who are going to be searching for the righteousness Jesus is offering. But sinners will, because those tax collectors and those sinners who have been neglected by society and who have been outcasts and who have been excluded, they're finally having someone who sees them as valuable. And they're finally having someone who's offering something to them that could change who they are and who they've been. They see hope in this message and they see grace in this message. And that's something they can latch on to. The Pharisees who walk around patting themselves on the back all day, they only see competition. They only see someone who can drive you know, away their presence and authority. And so it's those who are sinners who are most likely to receive the message of Jesus. So when you see sinners in the world, 
don't be afraid to see opportunity there. The self-righteous and those who already look righteous, those who've never harmed their reputation by being with sinners, those who have done everything in their power to keep their reputation holy and, and crystal clear and looking good, those are people who, even though Jesus calls, they will not hear it. Does Jesus want the Pharisees to be saved? Absolutely. Does Jesus want them to hear the call and to accept it? Sure. There's, like, he, Paul was a Pharisee who Jesus specifically called. Jesus doesn't have a problem with a person being a Pharisee. The problem is when the Pharisees are so righteous in their own minds that they're unwilling to heed and accept the call of God. And that's not just a problem Pharisees can run into. That's a problem each and every one of us can. So, as we bring our lesson to a close, here's the challenge. Number one, admit the reality of sin in your life. Um, Jesus came to call sinners. If you, if you don't see sin as a legitimate plague in your life, then you're not going to see that the call is all that important or necessary. The one who has been forgiven much is going to be really, really, really thankful. The one who doesn't think they have much to be forgiven of doesn't need much gratitude. <laughs> Nothing much was done for them. Admit the reality of sin in your life. Take an honest look at who you are, and you'll realize there's probably more darkness there than we like to think on the surface. Um, see sin problems, even in others, as opportunities, not to exclude, to hate them, to mock them, and to ridicule them, but opportunities for mercy, for embrace, for healing, and for righteousness. As opportunities for the call of Christ to change someone who matters to God. Don't allow hatred, disgust, or exclusion to define how you see others. Whether you're talking about uh, your political enemies, whether you're talking about people who you just don't get along with, whether you're talking about people who actually are involved in, in sin and who need uh, the teaching of Jesus to pull them out of it, don't allow hatred or disgust for those people to exclude them from your life, from your world. Rather, follow the example of Jesus and be a source of healing. Try to model what a physician does in the world around us. It's the people who looked down upon Jesus, who when they saw him with tax collectors and sinners, they immediately interpreted it in the least favorable light possible. Oh, he must love sin or something like that. Instead of, oh, he's helping these people, like they immediately saw it as something negative. Why? Because they didn't like Jesus. We can very easily, if we don't like people, if we don't like what other people do, Everything they do, interpret it in an unfavorable, uncharitable, and often incorrect light. Don't see people that way. See the love of God as something that provides opportunity for all of us around. You were called as a sinner, and perhaps you can invite others who are sinners into that call as well. And if there's anyone here this morning who recognizes the needs you have in your life, for the call of Christ to become something better, for the call of Christ to become saved, for the call of Christ to become a, a disciple and a follower of Jesus. The call is to you right here and right now for you to answer. If you want to talk to some of our elders in the back, uh, in the library, you can do that. Or if you want to come and sit on the front row while we stand and sing, you're invited to.